Good morning, everyone. I would normally say be seated, but we haven't done the creed yet, so it's okay. Welcome. My name is Phil, and I'm on our pastoral team, and it is a joy to be with you. I feel like my whole routine is thrown off because we didn't just do the creed, but we're, we're here. So um, let me start off by sending the grades four to sixes out, and we will dive in. As, as we've said, uh, today is a special Sunday for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, you is going to be baptized, which is just a reason to celebrate. And second is Christ the King Sunday, which, if you're like me, um, up until these past couple weeks, didn't mean much. And so today, my goal is to explore what this means. Uh, as you've noticed, we paused on our multi-year journey through the Gospel of Luke. We're making it even more a multi-year journey. Um, and we've begun working through what is called the lectionary, which is um, set readings every week of the, of the year that helps guide us through the Gospel narrative again and again and teach us and form us in all sorts of different ways. One of the things the lectionary alongside the Christian calendar seek to do is, you could say, um, sanctify time, create a mysterious nature around time, and to use time to point us to Jesus and the gospel each and every week and each and every Sunday. And one of the really exciting things is there are these days throughout the Christian calendar that highlight important theological ideas, important things to believe to shape us. And so today is Christ the King Sunday. And my goal is to explore uh, Christ the King, to teach kind of its history, its inception, and its purpose, but more than that, to preach why it is important that we believe Jesus is our King. How does that sound? Good? Cool. So we're going to go two parts. First, teaching the history, the reasoning, and then preaching why Jesus is King, why it matters, and why it's important to follow him with our whole life as King. But let me pray. Father God, we give thanks that you are king, you are not out of control, but you are in control. You hold this, this world and universe in your hands. I pray that today you open our eyes, our ears, uh, to hear and see how you are a good king who loves us and is calling us to your kingdom. Be with us today. Uh, let us be shaped and formed by your goodness. In your name, amen. So let's begin with a crash course history lesson, and I'm going to try to not talk too fast, but I get pretty excited when it comes to history. So today is Christ the King Sunday, and one of the things that I found completely fascinating about this day is it wasn't a feast day in the Christian calendar until 1925. Crazy, right? <laughs> if you're anything like me, I thought kind of the Anglican tradition like solidified in 1662, and that was the, the I's were dotted, the T's were crossed, and no other things could be added, but I was thoroughly wrong. Tradition is always growing and shaping and seeking to meet the current needs. And it actually began as a Catholic day and then transported over to a number of different traditions. But in 1925, the, the humble Pope, Pope Pius XI created what was called the Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, which we've gotten worse at naming things. Let's call it that. The Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. Now, this is more than an interesting fact or a brief history lesson because it teaches us some really important things. See, in, in the 1920s, the world was changing, post-First World War, in between the Second World War, and the 1920s was marked by new isms, new theology, or not theologies, new ideologies, new political movements were gaining power throughout Europe and the West. Things like communism and fascism and nationalism, um, consumerism and capitalism were growing as political ideologies across the world. 
And it's really important because it was moving away from a period of Christendom throughout Europe and the West. And Pope Pius, he looked at the world and he saw these problems and he thought, I know the solution. So he created the solemnity of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe. And in his writings, he, he wrote this. The manifold evils in the world were due to the fact that the majority of men had thrust Jesus Christ and his holy laws out of their lives. That these laws of Jesus had no place in private affairs or in politics. And we, the Pope, said further that as long as individuals and states refused to submit to the rule of our Savior, there would be no really hopeful prospect of a lasting peace among nations. Now, what does he mean here? The Pope is looking at Europe in the West, and he's seeing these ideologies, these new political movements growing, and he sees them as being antithetical to the church and to Christ. He sees them as being antagonistic to what Jesus is seeking to do. They're creating these factions across the world and creating a lack of unity. And he thought, I'll create this day. People will celebrate it. We'll experience unity. A hundred years later, we can say that did not happen as he thought. Um, as history kind of moved out of Christendom, these ideologies separated us more and more. And a hundred years later, these rival ideologies, and I don't just mean rival to Christianity, I actually mean rival to one another, have created a world more divided than we've ever felt. We are fractured, separated farther on the right and left and something in between than we've ever felt. And I would say even more than that, the, the fracturing for many of us has become more than fracturing. And I think we, we find some of these ideologies to be an inescapable reality. We could think of things like capitalism and consumerism that we feel here in Canada, and we don't feel that it's an ideology anymore. It's simply the reality we live in. We're trapped under its effects. There's nothing we can do about it. And we know that its institutions are destroying the world we live in. But this feast day, as it was established, I think there's still hope in what the Pope was trying to do. There was purpose in what he was trying to do, trying to bring unity. And this brings us to the purpose, because he says Christ the King, focusing on as Christ the King, can allow unity for all nations. So is this just a pipe dream that he had, or is it true that if we believe in Jesus as King, it can create unity through that trust? And I would say yes, but I think the issue is we don't actually have a good theological framework of what it means for Jesus to be king of our lives. What do I mean by that? Let me ask you a question. If I were to ask, what is the gospel, what would you probably say? I think each of us would probably say something along the lines of the gospel is good news that Jesus came to forgive my sins. Right? It's good news that Jesus came into the world to forgive sins, and in some way he had to die on the cross and resurrect for that to happen. For most of us, that's probably our theological gospel framework. And the thing is, it's lacking when it comes to the idea of Jesus being king over the universe. And I don't want you to hear that that's not good news or that's not the gospel. Jesus forgiving sins is the gospel, but it's not all of the gospel. If there's a book to read, and I don't feel like I recommend many books, but let me recommend this one. N.T. writes how God became king is incredible in, in reliving and bringing to light what the gospel is. 
And in that book, he brings this image of a four-speaker surround sound system. And this will probably not make sense to anyone but Rob, who actually knows EQing. Um, but think of the room in four speakers. And each one needs to be EQ'd correctly playing off one another to fully get the beautiful surround sound. And each speaker is playing off different frequencies, different noise, noises to give the full picture. But he says in the past 100, 200 years, we've essentially turned off three, three of the four speakers. Only one thing is playing, and it's Jesus came to forgive sins. And in his book, he highlights these three that need to be turned up, but I'm just going to focus on Jesus as king. Jesus as king is a vital part of the gospel for us to understand and live in. So in order to do that, let me read our passage one more time, which is a lectionary passage that brings light to Jesus' kingship. And my goal as we read through it is to see the ways that this passage is revealing to us what it means for Jesus to be king. So um, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28, and I will read this out for us. But Christ, great way to start a passage, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he stands over the kingdom, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that it does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. So maybe you're thinking, I don't see Jesus' kingship anywhere in this passage. I thought the same as well, but let's explore this. And there's three things I want to bring light to. First, the last name. Second, the last enemy. And third, the final reigning. So the last name, the last enemy, and the final reigning. These three things really show us what it means for Jesus to be king. So let's start off with Jesus' last name. If you're in community groups at um, St. Pete's, you know on kind of upwards nights, we read through the passage and we ask all sorts of questions of it. And one of the things that we always say is look for repetition. The word most repeated in this passage is Christ, and it comes up four times. And most likely, we just read right past it thinking it's saying Jesus' last name. It's like, Pearson, get off the bench. Something a coach never said to me. But it's saying Christ and just running past as though that's Jesus' name. But I, I, hate to, I hate to do this to you. Christ is not Jesus' last name, and I hope you know that. Christ was not Mary and Joseph's last name. It isn't Jesus' last name. So what is it? Christ from, comes from the Greek word Christos and from the Hebrew word Messiah. They both mean the same thing. They're a title, and it means anointed one. Now, Grady unintentionally helped me out two weeks ago when he did anointing on the side, and he talked about oil as a sign of anointing, oil as a symbol of what's going on on the inside. It's an outward symbol of the infilling of the Spirit. 
And as Grady said, today in the church, we anoint for several different reasons. We anoint for healing, for sending, for baptism, for catechism. We do these important moments to, to show that the Spirit is filling us. But in the Old Testament, there were three people and one thing that was anointed. Nothing else. Three people and one thing. So in the Old Testament, the first things that we, or the first people that we see being anointed are priests. In the book of Exodus, it's filled with instructions about how to anoint Aaron as the priest, how to anoint future priests, over and over again. It's just giving all these instructions, how to anoint the priest, and along with them, how to anoint the temple. Now, we need to remember, there's nothing magical about anointing with oil. It's a symbol of what's going on on the inside. And as the priests and as the temples were anointed, it was showing what they are anointed for. Priests were anointed to reveal and bring forgiveness of sins, to showcase God's forgiveness of sins, and to bring people to God. And temples were anointed to show God's presence in one place. And as the Old Testament moves, it focuses less on the anointing of priests and temples, and then it moves to kings. In 1 Samuel, God hears the cry of the people of Israel crying out for a king, and he tells his prophet Samuel, go anoint Saul. And so Saul is anointed as king of Israel. He fails at the role, and then God says again to Samuel, go anoint David. David is anointed, and the Spirit fills him, and he lives into the role that he's called to as an anointed one, which is to lead the people of God in their priestly role to bless all nations. So we see that God fills priests to show forgiveness. He fills the temple to reveal his presence. He fills kings to lead them in the mission of God. And the final one, the one prophet is anointed and to call people back to God. These are the four kind of anointed ones in the Old Testament. But the truth is, all of them fail in their role as anointed ones. Over and over again, the priests fail, the temple fails, the king fails, the prophets fail. And so we come to the book of Daniel, and Daniel has this vision of someone called the anointed one. Not a Messiah, like David or like um, Saul, or like the people who were anointed two weeks ago. They are technically Christ's anointed ones, but the anointed one. The one to whom all anointed ones point and lead to, both in their success, but also in their failure, because they reveal the need for a true and better priest, temple, king, and prophet. Are you with me? Okay. That was the most head nods I've ever got. <laughs> so Daniel talks about the anointed one, and then we get to the gospel of John and the gospels, and we hear these words. One of the disciples says, we found the Messiah, the anointed one. We found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets too. The anointed one that they've been waiting for, the one to whom priests, prophets, kings and temples have been pointing this whole time. So Jesus, as the anointed one, Jesus Christ has come to fulfill the role of priests in forgiving sins. He's come to fulfill the role of temple in bringing God's presence. He's come to fulfill the role of prophets in calling people back to God. But today, he comes to fulfill the role as king in leading the nation of priests. So this is first how we see Jesus' kingship appear in the passage. He is the anointed one, fulfilling all the roles that these previous anointed ones failed at. But this passage specifically highlights Jesus' kingship in a few surprising ways. What does a good king do? 
What does a good king through history and myth do? We can, of course, look at my favorite, King Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the lord of Gondor. And what did he do? He helps defeat a great evil and bring forth a history and a nation and a period of peace and prosperity for his people. Good kings throughout history and throughout our myths that have been told throughout history always come to defeat great evil and to bring forth a time of peace, a period of peace for the nation. And this is actually what we see going on throughout our passage. If we look at verse 21 to 22, it says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Or in verse 25 to 26, it says, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, according to Paul and the writers of Scripture, there is a great evil, a great problem at work in the world that began in Adam. Creation and life is not as it should be. Death is is around every corner. It shows up in all sorts of ways. And we feel this today, right? Scroll through Instagram or Twitter, and we see the world filled with violence. Turn on the news, we witness corruption abound in our political leaders. Have a breakup or a relationship ends and we feel the dislocation, the death of a relationship. And more simply, right at home, every day our bodies ache or our loved ones dies. We remember the world is broken. Things are not right. Death and all his friends abound. And to the authors of scripture, it needs to be remembered that death is the enemy. Death is the enemy that rules and reigns in so much of our lives. And I love that the Christian faith doesn't hide this. It puts it plain and simple. Death is not good. And in fact, I love what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, Jesus came to to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. All sinful choices, all actions are ultimately made because we fear death coming. We fear its effects, and so we live in response to that. Death is the dark Lord that reigns in the world. Do you feel that? Do you feel enslaved to death or the fear of death at times? And I want to pause here because maybe you think you don't. And if you don't, I think you've swallowed one of the greatest lies of our culture that death is not the enemy. So often our our culture and our churches try to make death soft. They try to make it joyful or easy. We talk about it as a doorway or a passage to heaven, a passing from one state of being to the next. We've tried to make death less horrible, and that's a lie. It's not true. In the Christian story, death is not good in any way, shape, or form. Sit with a friend or a family member as they die, and it's not a sign that the world is right. It's a sign the world is broken. It's not a moment of joy, of pain, but instead of pain and sorrow. The death, the enemy is still standing at times. But there's good news because Paul describes death as the ultimate enemy, but in doing that, he highlights that Jesus has defeated death. And so we can sit by gravesides, by deathbeds, and not fear and not be overcome with sadness and pain because we know resurrection is coming. 
But we know for that moment, we live in two worlds. The future breaking forth in Jesus' resurrection, but also death still standing up. And it's not good that it's standing up yet. But Jesus, or but Paul points us to Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of death dying. It's the fits and starts of death happening to death itself. And this is the only reason that death does not sting today because of the resurrection. But we need to understand death is not the doorway to heaven, only Jesus is. Jesus gives us hope at funerals and deathbeds because one day death will die because Jesus has defeated it. And this changes our life in so many ways. We, we have hope for the future. We have hope when death happens. But I think it actually changes something in our immediate day-to-day -day life because it changes what our enemy is. The Pope, he had created Christ the King Sunday to push against these ideologies and isms and political movements. And so the question is, what is the enemy of these ideologies? What is the enemy of, of nationalism, of capitalism, of feminism, or of anti-racism? The enemy is always other people. It is always people who don't agree with that political movement, that ideology. The enemy is always groups of other people, no matter what. You could think of it this way. The enemy of capitalism is people who don't shop, seek to live in minimalist ways, and there are people here that are the enemy of capitalism. The enemy of anti-racism is people who live in a racist manner. The enemy of feminists is people who hold the status quo and push to still have the patriarchy work. But every ideology, every political movement, every nation, every enemy, or any, every nation has an enemy, and it's always another group of people. So only when we allow Christ to be our king does our enemy change from one another to death and its effects. And that is actually where the unity can begin. We can look at our brothers and sisters around the world who disagree with us and say, you are not our enemy. In fact, both of us live under the fear of death, and only Christ can save us from that. We don't fight with one another. We instead become unified with Christ as our king. That's at least one hope that I begin having as I think of Christ as king. It rewrites our enemies in a world filled with them. And the problem is the church doesn't often act like this, right? We often, the church often pits us against people that aren't Christians or worse, against people that are. But it's because we're not submitting to Christ as our king. So we see, first Jesus comes and fills the role of Christ as the anointed one. Second, he comes to defeat the great enemy. But third, it leads to peace. When Christ becomes king, death dies. Decay ends and tears are wiped away. And here's the thing. This is actually why we celebrate Christ the King Sunday today instead of a different random day. In 1925, when the Pope originally instituted Christ the King Sunday, it was just in October. No real reason, just plopped in on October. But after Vatican II, it was moved from October to the last week right before Advent. And this is a big theological move because today and this week actually mark the end of the Christian calendar until it begins again in Advent when a new year starts. So we end our year with a reminder. One day, Jesus will fully be king because he has defeated death through his resurrection. One day, all things will be made new. There will be no more tears, no more death, no more decay. As a good king, 
Christ will bring in an era of peace as he hands the world over to his Father who will rule for all eternity. We celebrate today with joy because the end of history is not the world ending. The end of history is God becoming king forever. That's good news, right? So, that's my defense. That's my defense of why we should celebrate Christ the King Sunday. But more than that, I hope that's my defense of why we should celebrate Jesus as our king every day. So how can we do that? How can we begin to live as though Jesus is our king every single day? Well, Tim Keller, he brings this great, uh, who's a pastor from New York, he brings a great litmus test for how we can judge whether or not Jesus is king in our lives. And he says this, if you come to Jesus with any requirements, then Jesus is not king. If you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'll only believe in you if you believe in my ideology, then Jesus is not your king, your ideology does. If you say, you have to believe X, Y, or Z, then I'll believe in you, then Jesus has already not become our king. And the second way, I think maybe much easier, following Jesus as king simply means doing what he tells us to do. He tells us to forgive those who wrong us, to pray for those who persecute us, to turn the other cheek. We, we are told to look after the poor, the widow, the orphan, the least, the last, and the lonely. We are to commit our lives to loving our earthly enemies because they're not our true enemy. We are to share the good news of the kingdom and announce the forgiveness of sins. We proclaim death has been defeated every day. So, in other words, in order to live as though Jesus our king, we live as though that future kingdom is breaking forth into the here and now in ways big and small. My prayer for our church is that we live each day as though Christ is our king. We live according to his rule and reign for our lives. And we do it with joy and hope, knowing that like a good king, he has defeated death. And like a good king, he will bring forward that kingdom of peace that we hope and pray for. A kingdom that is waiting in heaven to break forth in us. That is good news to me. Let me pray.